0: Mark Twain wrote a real famous book called Tom Sawyer. If you read it, like me, it's probably because you had to for class once upon a time. But in chapter 2, right in the early stages of Tom Sawyer, a very famous scene where Aunt Polly forces Tom to paint her fence. He's got to go out on a beautiful day. He'd rather be doing anything else. He wants to go play, but instead he's got to whitewash the fence. And so he's just getting started early in the morning when another local boy named Ben Rogers comes walking by, Ben's got an apple in his hand, he's off to play. But he, t- he steps aside for a moment to mock Tom. He laughs, he says, you gotta work, huh? And Tom says, well, I guess if you'd call this work. Not every day a boy gets to whitewash a fence. And Ben stops for a moment, he says, no, 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 that's work. And Tom says, no, this is important. Aunt Polly didn't just ask anybody to paint this fence. In fact, I'm not sure there's one boy in a thousand that could paint it like me. Well, then Ben says, well, I, could, I can do it. Let me do some. And Tom says, no, no. She could have asked so-and-so, and she could have asked so-and-so, and she didn't. She only asked me, and she'll get real mad if it's not done proper. Only I can do this. Well, then Ben says, no, I want to do some. Let me do some. I'll give you my apple next thing you know, Tom is relaxing in the shade, munching on that apple, while Ben Rogers does all the work for him. And throughout the day, boys are walking by on their way to play, and they get roped into this con one by one as well. Everybody's doing the work for Tom, and Tom just keeps accumulating treasures. He gets a sack of marbles to go with his apple. He gets a kitten. And at the end of the day, there's three coats of whitewash on that fence. Tom hadn't done a lick of work. Um... What seemed to be miserable, somehow Tom made desirable. And then Mark Twain says something really interesting here. He says, Tom had discovered a great law of human action without knowing it. Namely, that in order to make a man or a boy covet a thing, it is only necessary to make the thing difficult to attain. In other words, if you want to make something attractive to a person, just make it hard to get. Y'all, that's what the Apostle Paul's dealing with right here in Colossians chapter 2. In the early church all over the place, not unique to Colossae, but everywhere in the early church, there was false teaching that surrounded the church, and all of those false teachings had the same thing in common. The idea that Jesus is cute, Jesus is great, but he's not enough. For you. you can't get in that easily. There's more you have to do. There's more you have to know. You've got to work harder than that. You can't just receive the grace of God for free. Nothing that's worth having comes for free. And so the false teachers, one of their tactics was actually to look down on the Christians to say, ah, the free grace of God isn't that cute, isn't that nice, but you think you're going to get into heaven that way? And they wanted to make true religion, true spirituality, harder and harder to attain. And the Apostle Paul is combating that false teaching. And he gives an entire chapter to it. We've been walking through. This is our third week and final week in Colossians chapter 2. Paul commanding us as Christians to guard ourselves against false teaching. And he really starts to get pretty specific. Four ideas that Paul brings up with specificity. Two of them we looked at last week. Man-centered philosophy and religious legalism. Two more that we're going to see today as the chapter closes, he, t- he, calls, he calls them for what they are. One is called mysticism, and the other is asceticism. Now, those are fancy words. We're going to define those words as we go. But everything that Paul is warning the Colossians against almost 2,000 years ago is still relevant to us today. And as we walk through it, I think you'll see uh, how, it, how it pertains to our own culture. But Paul's main point is this. Uh, Our Christian faith, your Christian faith, is not second class. You're not junior varsity if you haven't stepped across some other imaginary line of spirituality or of behavior. No, what we have in Jesus, Paul says, is perfect and complete. As Robert has already mentioned, sufficient. What we have in Jesus is enough, more than enough. We don't have to go looking for more than what we've already been given. That's what false teaching seek, uh, seeks to do, to make, to make things harder than God has actually made them in his son, Jesus Christ. So walk with me here back through this scripture, beginning in verse 16. This is Colossians 2, 16. Paul is actually going to borrow here a little bit from what we looked at last week to begin. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The point he's making here is nobody, nobody's allowed to add extra religious stuff to the good news gospel of Jesus. And right here, what Paul has in mind, he, he has in mind the Jewish people who may have been well-meaning, at least some of them may have been well-meaning, but their attitude was this, you can't be a real Christian, you can't be accepted before God unless you take on our laws and customs all the laws and customs of Judaism and y'all you know, that can be a convincing line of argument you know why because all the laws and customs they were talking about are in our book they didn't make them up they're in here you read through you read through exodus leviticus you read through the law the sabbath dietary codes it's all in here and so the thought was if you really want to be a christian you've got to go all the way back and live out the jewish way of life and then you'll get in um, one example, one quick example. Uh, dietary codes, if you read through, my goodness, Leviticus especially, all sorts of dietary laws. Things that the Jews were not allowed to eat, uh, like pork. Now, can you even imagine? Let's just pause for a moment. Mississippians. <laughs> if we weren't allowed to eat pork, I would die. So much of my diet <laughs> revolves around that most delicious of meats. They weren't allowed to eat it. Okay, so, Well, if you're going to be a real Christian then you've got to do like us. You've got to eat like us, right? But Paul makes something clear. Those dietary laws, those customs, even the Sabbath day, he says those things are a shadow of what is to come, meaning those things are symbolic. They're symbols. They're not the substance. They're not the real thing. They're meant to point us to something that ultimately is the substance. And you see what he says. The substance belongs to what? To who? Christ. Jesus is the real thing. Everything, everything else that they're trying to get you to buy into is really just a symbol that's ultimately pointing us to the fulfillment, which is Christ. We have Christ. Why would we go back to those lesser things? So Paul reinforces the need to fight religious legalism, but then he turns his attitude, his uh, attention here, to, um, to something called mysticism. And y'all, honestly, we could just call it ordinary spirituality Our our culture is soaked through with what we call spirituality, which is a very undefined and ambiguous idea. But you'll see it here in verse verse 18. When Paul talks about uh, spiritual mysticism, look, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, which means false humility, and the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. The head is Jesus from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Now, what's what's going on right here? What Paul is saying at first when he says, let no one defraud you of your prize. He's saying, let no one act as your spiritual umpire to use maybe a baseball term. Nobody can look at you from the outside and say you're out because your spiritual experience isn't heightened enough. Your Christian faith isn't mystical, isn't spiritual enough. I worship angels. I see visions. Therefore, I'm more spiritual than you. Now, we call that mysticism because it's the very popular idea that that spirituality, true spirituality, is out of mind and out of body. It's not something you get your hands on. It's not really ultimately something you find in any book. It's something that's left up to your own personal experience, and no one can hold you accountable for it because it's your experience. It's very spiritual, right? And that's what spirituality generally means even now in our culture. It's all about what I feel and what I experience. It's not meant to get too concrete. But y'all, here's the difference. Here's the difference. Is the Christian faith spiritual? It absolutely is. The Christian faith is spiritual. We are not naturalists who believe that everything that that is has a scientific explanation and can be taken in by the naked eye and reproduced in a laboratory. We don't believe that. We believe in a spiritual realm, a spiritual reality. But the Christian faith is not merely spiritual. It's also concrete. It's also concrete. We believe that there is a God who created the physical heavens and the earth And more than that, a God who physically entered into our existence, into our world, in the person of his son Jesus, who physically died on a cross and physically rose again from the grave. Now, if you take those things away from our faith, or even if you just spiritualize those things, yeah, Jesus rose from the grave in my heart. Spiritually, sure, but not physically. Listen, The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, if you take the physical death and resurrection away from Christianity, then our faith is entirely in vain. We're wasting our time right here. We we could be out doing anything else right now other than this if our faith is not also concrete. And, of course, our faith is bound together in... A book that we're allowed to hold in our hands is an amazing gift that we have. The content of what we believe has been recorded as the, as the God-breathed word that we get to read and study for ourselves. So, so listen, this, this idea, this mystical idea that there's a special knowledge that exists outside of this book, there's a special experience of the angels or visions or what it may be that you need beyond what you have in Jesus Christ, Paul says that kind of mysticism is flatly wrong. Um, True spirituality is not unaccountable and merely personal and subjective. You can't have your own unique experience of the divine and live your life resting upon that false reality. He says it's not true. Um, You can't measure your life based on visions that are unique to you and nobody else knows what you're talking about. That is what Paul says, fake spirituality. And he said, listen to this, Paul actually says, um, he doesn't mince words on this, if you look in the middle of verse 19, or 18 rather, at the, at the end of 18, he says, this kind of person who looks down on you because he sees visions and you don't, he says, this guy is inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. That word fleshly literally means Unspiritual. This person who is trying to defraud the Colossians, perhaps it was one person who was the chief speaker or maybe an entire group, Paul says, never mind, whoever he is, he is not himself spiritual at all because he doesn't hold fast to the head. He doesn't hold fast to Christ. He lives on an island of his own mysticism. And do not let him put that upon you. He's not your umpire. Y'all, the Colossians were doing, you know, in some sense, they were doing what we're doing, They gathered for worship, they shared communion, they studied the Word of God together, they served each other, they were growing in their faith, they were being baptized, all those things, and people were coming along, mystics were coming along and saying, that's cute, if you're on junior varsity, that's fine. But you really ought to step across the line and be like us. Y'all, Paul says, no, no, we hold fast to the head. That is Christ. And therefore, we grow with a growth that is from God, not up to our our visions, not up to any angel or any other spiritual realm that we imagine for ourselves. He says, like ligaments in a body, we're fashioned together and we grow together as the church. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. We have a growth that comes from God and we experience it together. So, if anybody comes along, listen, if anybody comes along and says, Oh, you're a Christian. Do you see visions? Do you speak in tongues? Have you been, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? They give you, start giving you a list of extra spiritual things to make you feel like you're somehow junior varsity. That's happened to me. Perhaps it's happened to you. Then Paul says, don't buy into that. They're not your umpire. The gospel of Jesus Christ is complete. It's enough for you. Okay? Um, and so if you don't hold fast to the head, Paul says, you're, you're unspiritual, no matter what visions you claim to have. Um... Paul takes mysticism, we just looked at it, but then he goes to the other side of the spectrum. And this is, there's really no way for me to transition here except to say there's just a very clear break. Because of the four issues that Paul brings up in chapter 2, all of them relate to one another in some sense, but they're also distinct. Okay? And so we've got mysticism, which is more kind of, you know, spiritual head in the clouds. But then Paul's going to deal, lastly, with something that we call asceticism. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that word. I had to look it up myself. But the word asceticism is the opposite of mysticism. It's all about the physical realm. It's all about the body. Actually, that word ascetic means one who exercises, one who strives, one who works. And so the opposite problem of the mystics was the guy, the girl, who says, you're only a real Christian if you behave in such a way that you push all the evil world away and live totally pure. It was an absolutely pure way of life that said, based on my good behavior and based on my avoidance of evil, I'll become acceptable to God. And you you see that in verse 20. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world... Why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, to rules, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. When Paul says you've died with Christ to the elementary principles, teachings of the world, what he means is when we come to Jesus Christ, we come to him as our sole... Savior. We don't don't need Jesus Christ plus anything else. And therefore, it's as if we come to Jesus and we die to every other principle that promises to give us life or to make us whole and complete. All the elementary principles of the world, all the things that you and I think we ought to do in order to be acceptable to God, no. We've died to those things because we've been made alive in Jesus. And so this spirituality is not head-in-the-clouds mysticism. This spirituality that Paul's talking about now says, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. Paul says, you've died to that, so why would you submit yourself again to it? Um, the teaching that says, and, and y'all hear me on this, the world is evil. You've, you've heard that. You've probably thought that <laughs> every time you turn on the news. The world is evil. What do, how do we solve that problem? Well, we can't. You can't solve that problem. So what do you need to do? You need to separate yourself from it. In every conceivable way, separate yourself from the bad stuff. You be good and you'll rise above the evil in the world. Now that sounds good. And to some degree, there's, there's value in that. The Bible says we don't participate in the deeds of darkness, of course. But these people are, are rather than being lost in the clouds like the mystics, these people think, my physical behavior can save me. If I can simply avoid the bad that's in the world and live a life that's good, then I can deny myself all sinful pleasures and I can work my way to heaven. So it was thought, if you really want to be spiritual, it's not about seeing angels and visions. No, 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 no. If you want to be spiritual, then you remove yourself from anything that might potentially become sinful. Anything that has pleasure attached to it, anything that's delightful and enjoyable, you need to be worried about that because delight and enjoyment is itself potentially a bad thing. And so these ascetics, these people, these men would not get married because in marriage you enjoy the consummation of that marriage and that's bad. You, can't, you have to be celibate. You can't get married. A lot of times they would move to the wilderness or they would live in caves. They would refuse to bathe. A lot of times they would refuse to eat. Or if they did eat, they wouldn't eat food that tasted good. Because that in itself is a bad thing. You can't enjoy it. Uh, if they ever thought sinful thoughts, if they caught themselves feeling sinful feelings, they would punish themselves physically with whips and chains. They would beat themselves in order to purge that sin out of them. And you say, well, thank the Lord it's not like that here. Okay, we don't really, you know, you, you look around, we don't see a lot of that here. We, we tend to go the other direction into the excess and the enjoyment of those pleasures and not the withholding of those things. But y'all, I... I Um, the church has not always had a great track record of this. And you may have grown up in a church like this or your grandparents' church was like this. And I don't say this to laugh about it. I just say it because it's true. That we as the church can get sideways and become like the ascetics without realizing it. There are churches still today and of course in the past where, where we've said, listen, faith in Jesus Christ, yes. But if you really want to be a Christian, here are the rules. You can't drink You can't smoke. You can't dance. You can't listen to rock and roll or anything with a beat, for that matter. You can't go to the movies. You can't play cards. You can't read novels. You can't dress up for Halloween. You can't wear a bathing suit. And the list goes on, and those are not hypotheticals. Those are real. Those are real rules. Now, some of those do require wisdom and discernment and conversation. I'm not trying to be dismissive entirely. But here's Paul's point. Verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Do you see that? A person who is very committed, very devoted to religious duty, that person will give off the appearance of wisdom. We might look at a person like that and say, man, how diligent. How devoted? That guy didn't even own a television. What a a spiritual person. But Paul says, if... Now, of course, devotion to God is a good thing, right? But Paul says this kind of devotion is false because it's self-made religion. You see that? It's it's self-abasement. It's severe treatment of the body. It doesn't matter, Paul says, how hard a person like this works Their faith is in themselves. Their faith is not in Christ. The idea that the more I avoid the bad stuff, the more I do the good stuff, the more acceptable I'll be in God's sight, that is not what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us. And therefore, that is false religion. It's faith in me and my ability to keep up appearances. That form of religion, it's self-made, it's self-centered, and therefore it's of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, here's the kicker, that no matter how much you try to push the bad, evil stuff out, you cannot do anything about the bad, evil stuff within. That's, all, that's Paul's whole point. And if we're honest, we know it's true. You can, you can discipline yourself to death, and you will never touch your sinful heart because we are sinners. No matter how hard you try to avoid the evil in the world, you can't get away from the evil in your own heart. And so religious rule-following, no matter how impressive it may appear from the outside, it can't deal with sin. Only Jesus can deal with sin. In fact, the more religious you appear on the outside, the more you have to hide your own reality from others, because you can't get away from it. So Paul is making two very relevant points, I think, right here. That if, you're, if, you're, if your spirituality is mystical, if it's all about experiences and visions or however you want to define it, Paul is saying you may look and feel very spiritual, but you'll never get to God that way because God has come to us concretely. God has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. God does not save us through uh, visions and angels, God saves us through the blood of his son physically shed on a cross. You don't get there if you take the concrete reality away. And then he makes the other side of the statement. He says, listen, if you're very super disciplined and super careful to avoid all the bad stuff, you still miss God. You still miss him. Because your greatest problem is not outside of you, in the world somewhere. Your greatest problem is in here. And only Jesus Christ, by his grace, can deal with your sin. And so false teaching claims to offer more but in fact, it offers far less. And 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 in thinking that way, I want to see, you know we're going to kind of wrap up. I want to go back to this Mark Twain quote from earlier, and I'll summarize it. But you know, Twain said that if you want to make something desirable and attractive to a person, you just have to make it hard to attain, right? Hard to get. Uh, we all know what that's like. I learned that lesson the hard way when I was 13 and I was in middle school. And this is not a spiritual thing, of course, but I, when I was in middle school, I wanted so desperately to be included in a certain group of kids. And I could list their names off right now. I remember them like it was yesterday. I wanted so badly to be in this group, y'all, but it wasn't easy. I, I wasn't enough where I stood to be accepted and included. And so I had to change the way I dressed. I had to change the way I acted. I had to try to be a different person, a different personality, try to be funny. I did whatever I could to get in, to be in. And the fact that it was exclusive is what made me want it all the more. If it's that exclusive, it must be that much better than the friend group I already have. I've got to get in. Maybe you know what that's like, that desperate search for inclusion, for popularity, for approval. Well, y'all, this is, in a much more serious way, this is what we run up against spiritually. And you may not feel like you encounter this much day-to-day, but the, the, the belief systems that combat what we believe, that come against what we believe, are everywhere. Like radio waves in the environment, they're all over the place. So much so that we might not even know them when we see them. But here's the reality. there's a, in, in Colossae, there's a surrounding culture that insisted what you have in Jesus is cute, it's neat, but it's not enough. It's not enough if you really want to be righteous, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to be spiritual, then here's what you have to do. Here's what you have to experience. They're dangling a carrot out in front of the church, making something hard to, risk, to achieve in the hopes that they can convince these people that Christ is not enough for them. Nothing comes free. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to earn it. Um, and y'all, we might be fooled sometimes into thinking the harder something is to get, the better, therefore, it must be. The more expensive the car, the better the car must be. Whatever it is, if if there's something that's harder for me to achieve, attain, then it must be worth having. And Paul says, no, not when it comes to the gospel. Not when it comes to the gospel. I want to point you guys real quickly back to something early on in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul gives an early summary of what he's going to say, and we're walking through now the implications of it. Listen to what he says. Uh, I'm going to just... Middle of verse 2 right here. Paul is praying in verse 2 that we would attain to something. There is an attainment, Paul says, but listen to what he says. Paul prays that you will attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's prayer is that we would attain to something. Yes, but what is it? It's not what the false teachers were saying, you've got to attain to, you've got to achieve, you've got to experience, you've got to earn. No, what Paul is saying is this, that you and I, we don't need something more than Jesus. What Paul wants us to attain to is more of Jesus. And I'm going to say that again because I need to hear it. Paul says you don't attain to something more than Jesus as if he's gotten you a good start and now it's up to you to finish the race. No. He says you attain to more and more of Jesus to grow more deeply in Christ because in Christ we have all that we need. He is more than sufficient for us. There's nothing else out there that's being held out from you. And so y'all, we've spent now three weeks in Colossians chapter two talking about the danger of false teaching. Why? Why? Because, y'all, everything in our world, and I mean this, everything in our world naturally runs counter to what we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything else in the world operates on a system of earning. And I, I'm serious. You, earn, you had to earn your letterman's jacket? You had to earn your grades. You earned, perhaps, a scholarship. You earned people's respect. You earned the love of your spouse. You have to earn it. That's the way the world operates. And, of course, that's why false religion always involves some sort of earning or stepping across another line. There's always another line to cross. But, no, here in the Gospel, Jesus says with 100% certainty that God already loves you fully, and he has proved that love through sending his Son for the forgiveness of your sins. There's all sorts of effort involved in Christianity. When we come to Christ, we're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's not some sort of, uh, you know, we don't just sit around and enjoy the blessings. No, God calls us to himself. There's a lot of effort involved, but there's no earning. There's no earning. Not in the gospel. Everything we have has been given to us as a gift. By faith alone in Christ alone, and nothing else, you and I are made complete. That's good news. That's good news. Y'all, here in a minute, we're going to sing. And you know what? We, I hope that when we stand and sing, the Lord our God is ever faithful, that you will get a great deal of satisfaction out of it. Um, sometimes I stand and sing and worship, and in my mind, coursing through my mind, are all the things I need to do better, all the things I haven't done well, There's a place for that, of course, where we come to God and repent of our sin and and ask forgiveness, of course, of course. But sometimes I forget to to be satisfied when I sing praises to God. And I, I I want to encourage you in this in a moment. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let the love of Jesus Christ satisfy you deeply. We're not going to sing about things we need to be doing. I'm not sure we sing a whole lot of songs like that. We're going to sing about what He has done, and therefore we are complete. That ought to satisfy us, and I hope we'll sing like we really believe it. Father God, we ask this morning uh, that You would be merciful to us, where we are easily deceived, and I'm first in line. Of, sing- of Of I like to think sometimes that I'm junior varsity, that I'm. I'm a Christian, but I haven't experienced this and I and I'm and I'm not doing enough of that. And therefore maybe I'm second class. Maybe I haven't really reached the finish line. I haven't really I don't really have it. Lord, would you correct me, correct us where we maybe have, have bought into that. That we're just we're just not spiritual enough. We're not we're not diligent enough. Lord, that's not what saves us. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have an all-sufficient Savior, one who, when he breathed his last on that cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't set us up with a good start. He finished the work of salvation for us. Father, thank you that that is true. And I pray, Lord, today that we would rest on that truth, that by faith in you, we are complete. And yes, we know there are all sorts of things we need to grow in. There's all sorts of effort we need to be reignited in to love you, pursue you, obey you. We know that. But don't let us buy into that false notion that there's more that needs to be done to save us. Make us so secure, Lord, in that today. And let that be the springboard to our effort, knowing that we can't earn a single thing. Let the gift of Christ um, drive us, Lord, to deeper devotion, to greater obedience, to more fruitfulness. Let's start in the right place, I pray, Lord, today. Um, Lord, where we might believe only half-truths, where we might be easily deceived because we haven't spent time in your Word, Lord, call us to that today, to be students of your Word, to be connected into the church, that we might reinforce what is true together and walk in that light and that truth. And we pray it in his name. Amen.